Hello, and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Paul says, we Jews, we tried to do it and we couldn't even do it. Why would we inflict this upon you Gentiles? In the Old Testament of the Bible, it's recorded that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. God made very clear the way he wanted his people to behave and we refer to it as the Mosaic Law. But it wasn't the be-all and end-all, as they say in the marketing world, but wait, there's more. The law was just the beginning. It's Jesus' death on the cross recorded in the New Testament of the Bible that fulfilled the law. It's life-changing stuff, so stay tuned as Dr. Corbett continues in his series Freedom in Christ tonight set free from sin's prison. We're continuing through Paul's epistle to the Galatians and now we're going to get into what might be considered the second of three parts of Paul's epistle and the tone changes which is one of the markers for how we know this is actually a new section that he's dealing with the Galatians issues and in this issue the key word is brothers and by this we mean Paul is going to take quite a different tone now. And in this section, we might refer to this as being set free from sin's prison. Knowing that Paul is responding to the false teachers, the Judaizers who were teaching that in order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. Of course, saying this to Gentiles, those who are not racially Jewish or religiously Jewish. And Paul is, he is aghast at this. This is not right. To say that you have to become a keeper of the law of Moses, and the law of Moses is referred to as the Torah. Paul says, we Jews, we tried to do it, and we couldn't even do it. Why would we inflict this upon you Gentiles? With that in mind, in this section, we're going to see that Paul is going to be addressing some pretty deep Jewish theology And in order for us to understand this, in order for us to look over the shoulder of the original recipients around 45, AD 45 or so, we need to get a bit of an understanding as to what was being taught that Paul was so upset about. And why does Paul go to this extraordinary lengths to explain some pretty complex Jewish theology? Before we do that, Join with me in prayer because I believe that as we ask God to speak to us, his word will indeed speak to us. So no matter where you are, if you're watching via live stream, if you're watching perhaps by YouTube or if you are enjoying this, perhaps in your car while driving, listening to it via podcast on SoundCloud or or Apple iTunes, however you're doing it, just take a, a moment with me now and pray. Father, I thank you that your word is living and active, as it says. It is able to cut in between the very dividing of soul and spirit and body. Your word is able to go deep into our heart and expose what's really there. And Father, in doing that, we pray, plant your word there. May your word take root in our heart and may it shape us to be the people that you've called us to be. I pray for particularly those who don't know you, that in this moment they might come to hear your voice. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul has opened in his first section with some very strong language because he is actually upset. He's upset that people have lied about him. They have distorted the message that he preached. 
he has then misrepresented that his opponents have misrepresented that message as if it was the gospel that the original disciples of Christ were teaching, preaching and promoting. And Paul has gone to great lengths to point out they were wrong, wrong and wrong. Paul's opponents were wrong on all three counts. And Paul is now going to show his opponents, you want to argue about the law of Moses? You want to argue about the Old Testament? All right, let me take it up to you. And so Paul is now going to use a very gentle tone with the Galatians. And that, that tone is seen when he goes from, you know, oh, you foolish Galatians, <laughs> chapter 3, verse 1. Now here we are in verse 15, where Paul speaks to them, I would say, in a very tenderly way by addressing them as brothers. Let's have a look now. This is Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, there's the word, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, what's he talking about? Firstly, the expression brothers, it's the Greek word Adelphoi. I, I won't always give you the Greek word, so don't worry too much. But, but it does actually mean brothers. And Paul's going to use this term sons and brothers. And it sounds like he's very gender specific. But there is an aspect to the law of Moses, which may be possible to, to miss the sense in which Paul is now about to introduce that if you know Christ, if you're in the new covenant with Christ, you are a son and a brother in the sense that it was the sons and the brothers under the old covenant that had a certain status of receiving the double portion, the greater portion of the inheritance. So I know modern translations like the NIV, which is a good translation, they will render this as brothers and sisters. And in the sense that Paul is writing to people who are both you know, male and female. That's true. That is true. But there is a status representation here that just may be missed here. Paul's opponents, of course, had referred to Abraham as their father, Father Abraham. And of course, if you were connected to Father Abraham through the rite of circumcision, you were brothers together. But Paul is going to make a point about this. He's going to say that this covenant that God made with Abraham happened long before Moses, 400 or so years before. And so we read in verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And Paul's going to make a point about offspring because he goes on to say in this verse, it does not say and to offsprings, as if we're actually talking about brothers being fellow Jews Referring to many, Paul says, but referring to one and to your offspring, Paul says in Galatians 3.16. And he finishes this verse with these three powerful words, who is Christ. In other words, if you're connected to Christ, you are the recipient of the promise made to Abraham. You don't have to go through the law of Moses to enjoy this privilege. Verse 17. This is what I mean, says Paul. The law which came 430 years afterward 
does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. You see, Paul is saying these false teachers are telling you you've got to keep the covenant made between God and Moses and Moses and Israel. You've got to keep that covenant with all of its commands and laws, all its prescriptions. But Paul says, but wait a minute. There is a covenant that was ratified long before this one. And even this one, the prophets declared that the time would come when it would become obsolete, which the writer to the Hebrews says in uh, chapter 8, verse 13. And Paul says, but even if it is made obsolete, there is a covenant that God established with Abraham and his offspring, that is Christ, that will be everlasting. And it's a covenant established by entering into it through faith. And faith in this instance means trust. We read in verse 17, This is what I mean, the law, the Torah, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void, he says. So this promise of righteousness or right standing given to Abraham and his seed, not seeds, is based on trusting God and found its ultimate fulfillment in the one who demonstrated perfect trust in God the Father, that is Christ. Galatians 3.18, Paul says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And we've already seen, Paul says, that offspring is the seed, and that is Christ. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. We read in Psalm 68, verse 17, which Paul seems to be alluding to here, where it says that these angels are described as coming on Mount Sinai, the chariots of God, it says in the Psalms, Psalm 68, verse 17, are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So Paul is referring to when God delivered the law and gave the law to Moses to give to Israel. It was accompanied by angels, myriads and myriads of angels when that law was given. Wow. But we read in verse 20, now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. And that one is the, the same word, echad, in the Hebrew. And we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, that this God is one is an expression that, that strikes right to the root, right to the foundation of Jewish theology. So Paul is countering the smug, the arrogant, the smarty pants, <laughs> Judaizers who were using all these technical terms out of the law of Moses, the Old Testament, to bamboozle the Galatians who were already open to wanting 
to be made right with God, bamboozling them with all these terms from the Old Testament. And Paul is referring to the essential elements of the Old Testament in this very compact, densely compact theology that he's unpacking here when he says, God is one. Where does he get that from? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So we see Paul is, is back at you. He's coming back at the opposers of the gospel that he was preaching and teaching. He's showing them, you, you want to have, have a bit of a Bible quiz? Let's go for it. And Paul goes on in Galatians 3.21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? What promises is he referring to? The promises made to Abraham. Abraham, your faith is now being reckoned to you. Your trust in me is now being reckoned to you as righteousness. And here's the thing. Abraham's faith and trust in God was because of what Christ would one day fulfill. The faith of the old covenant is a faith that looked forward to the cross. The faith of the new covenant, that's our faith, our trust, is a faith that looks back to the cross. In the old covenant, they looked forward. In this covenant, the new covenant, we look back. In either way, it takes faith to be made right with God, trust to be made right with God, not our religious efforts. And that's what Paul's addressing here. So if Paul says, is, is the law contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. Forever law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, if it was possible to give a law that would be obeyed perfectly, <laughs> no problem. Let's have all the more laws we can get if that could do what you claimed to make us have eternal life, to make us right with God. But Paul says it didn't and it can't. It just can't do what these false teachers are claiming it can do. Therefore, we're made right with God by simply trusting Christ. Not by trusting Christ and doing this or doing that. Paul goes on, Galatians 3, verse 22, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Paul may well be challenged at this point by the false teachers. Paul, what are you saying the whole point of the law was then? If you're saying it had no value, no point, then that just seems so unlike God. And so Paul seemingly responds to this in the next verse. And he basically, so what's the point of the law, you ask? The law was given so that people would realize that they can't keep it. The law was given so that they might realize they need to be forgiven because they can't keep it. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 23 now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So we see Abraham had 
coming faith, faith that would be looking forward. And when was it revealed? When was the point of it revealed? When Christ died on the cross, he was dying for you and for Abraham. He was dying for me and Abraham. He was dying for us before the cross and after the cross. That's the basis of how God can forgive us because he takes our sin, our guilt, our shame, our shortcomings and he puts it all onto Christ. And Christ put it all on the cross. He gave up his life so that we could have life. This is the point of Galatians 3.23. Galatians 3.24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. What does it mean to be justified? Declared not guilty. Declared not guilty. Any accusation of wrongdoing is now made null and void because we have been proven not guilty. We know, of course, that we're not innocent, but Christ, his right standing with God, which is that word righteousness, has been given to us. So the law, the Torah, the law of Moses, was given because we were like little children. <laughs> we didn't know right from wrong, really, but the law clearly spelled it out. This is right, this is wrong. There was no doubt. This is what the law did. And Paul says, verse 25, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. It was as if during the era of the law of Moses, we were like little children. We didn't know what was right and wrong, but the law clearly told us, but the day would come when we would be treated like an adult because God would take that law and write it on the tablet of our hearts. The Bible uses the word heart as a synonym for the word mind. The fact that he could write something on our heart means it was written in our minds, that we could perceive this is what I should do. And we know that the new covenant promises that when it would be established, God would actually give those who enter into it a new heart. Not only would that law be written on their heart, but also a new set of desires would come to keep that law. And not only that, there would come the filling with the Holy Spirit who would lead those who are redeemed, those who have received a new heart, those who have the law of God written on their heart. But now the Holy Spirit would lead them and guide them, direct them, scold them, that is, convict them when they've done wrong and bring them back to repentance, the repairing of the damage done to the name and character of God. And so this is the new covenant. This is what it says. Galatians 3.26 answers the question, well, who, who can enter into this? This sounds too good to be true. How can anyone be made so right with God that God would, from that point on, completely overlook their sins and not judge them for it? How does that work? 
we see in Galatians 3.26 that Paul says this, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. And again, I pointed out this sounds very gender specific. You're all sons of God. What about daughters of God? And I know some translations render it sons and daughters. But there is a point here that Paul is making. The point is status and access. I love what C.S. Lewis says about some of these concepts here. He's, some people will misinterpret what Paul is about to say regarding what happened to believers when they were baptised. When Paul, when Paul the Apostle says here, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, C.S. Lewis goes to comment, That includes sons in the sense that you who are men, males, you will become a true male in your glorified, resurrected state. And C.S. Lewis goes on to explain, but this also applies to females, to women. In the eternal state, that is, when we accept our inheritance is in heaven with God. And may I point out, the Bible uses, often uses the word heaven as a synonym for God which is why in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew takes the term the kingdom of God and renders it the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes we think that being a Christian means that you're going to heaven as if heaven is about a location. And in the hideous strength, C.S. Lewis describes the conversion of Jane, Jane Studdock, who realises that she needs to give her life to Jesus Christ. And in that moment when she did, C.S. Lewis says, Jane came to see that the very thing she longed for, that happiness she longed for, that satisfaction she longed for, that deep joy that she longed for was not a thing at all. It was a person. When she came to see that what she was actually longing for but could never put into words was a person. And that person was Jesus Christ, God the Son. Her entire life was transformed. And C.S. Lewis goes on to describe in The Weight of Glory that men will become true men in heaven and women will become true women in heaven because the very fullness of what it means to be a man male and the very fullness of what it means to be a woman female will be realized when we are made completely and perfectly into the image of jesus christ that's second corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 so paul now is saying you've got to realize that when you were baptized when you slaves were baptized you were made a brother to your master who's a christian and you you women who were baptized when you were baptized, you may have thought that as a woman you had no dignity, but you were given the dignity of Christ as a woman. And you Gentiles, when you were baptized, you were made equal with all the direct descendants of Abraham who've also given their lives to Christ. And Paul says, for as many as you were baptized, this is Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Your identity now as a follower of Christ is not male or 
female. Your identity is not slave or free, employer or employee. Your identity now as a Christian is not that you are of Jewish descent or Gentile descent. Your identity when you become a Christian is as a son or daughter of God. You are in Jesus Christ. You are walking with Jesus Christ. That's why Paul could say this, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now I know that there are many people that read that and recite that and quote that, or should I say misquote that, as saying there's no longer any male or female. There's no, there's no gender distinction. There's no longer Jew nor Greek. There's no racial distinction. You are all, uh, it says here, there's no more slave or free. You're all one, as if those distinctions don't matter. But Paul is not saying that. In fact, he's saying quite the opposite. No matter what your identity now, you can have equal and joint access to everything that God is offering to you. It doesn't matter if you're a woman who feels oppressed or victimized. In the eyes of God, when you turn to Christ, you become someone who is deeply valued, deeply precious because you have Christ within you, the hope of glory that beyond this life there awaits for you such glory that Christ will give you. C.S. Lewis says again in The Weight of Glory on page 28, he says, If you were to meet the dullest, simplest, most uninteresting person, yet they are redeemed, and you were to see them as they one day will be, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. C.S. Lewis describing the incredible glory, the incredible radiance, the incredible magnificence that awaits a true believer in Jesus Christ. Not someone who just mentally assents to the fact that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be, but someone who has surrendered their life and the Spirit of God has come and filled them and placed the life of Christ within them. Now they long to please him and to do what's right. That's the kind of transformation Paul is describing here. And he says it's represented by baptism. He says in verse 29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. When a believer goes through the waters of baptism, they lay down their old identity as their primary identity, and they gain a new primary identity. That new primary identity is Christian, not homosexual or heterosexual, not bi or L or G or Q or T or A or whatever. No, the one who surrenders their life to Christ gains a new identity that they take with them into eternity beyond this life. So the question really is at this point, will you entrust your soul to Jesus Christ? And if not to Jesus Christ, who to? <laughs> who is more qualified to take you from this life into the next? Not just a change of location, 
but a change of status. A status that makes you a joint heir with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right now, you can become a son or daughter of God with equal status. Equal status. You may have been told a lie, a lie that says you're not lovable. No one cares about you. Everything you do is a flop. But let me tell you the truth. God loves you. God loves you more than you could ever fathom. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place, to take your sin, your guilt, your shame, your wrongness. And he now offers you through the exchange, the great exchange, the reformers called it, the great exchange where we exchange our filthiness, our undeserving filthiness. He takes it and he gives us his purity, his righteousness, perfectly innocent. This is an exchange that is completely free, but it will cost you everything. What it will cost you is a heart that's prepared to surrender to Christ. Are you prepared to make that commitment right now? I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know how religious you've been before. I don't know what you're trusting in. In your final heartbeats, in the final pulse of blood through your body system, in those dying moments, know this. If you are trusting in anything but Christ alone, you'll be lost for eternity. Don't do it. Trust Christ. Let me lead you in a prayer. Father God, reveal yourself to me. Help me to live for you from this point. I thank you that you are offering me forgiveness and adoption right now. I want to accept it and say to you, yes, please. Thank you. You pray a prayer like that. I guarantee you, your life will be different from this point on because God will give you a new heart. He will write his word on your heart and he will fill you with his spirit enabling you to live differently. If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to get one. If you haven't got one and you live locally to us, we would gladly give you one. If you need something to help you to get started in your understanding of the Bible, I encourage you to go to youtube.com forward slash Dr. Andrew C. and you'll see I go through the entire Bible by reading each day the Bible and explaining it. And by the time we're done, We get through the entire Bible in a year. And Father, I pray for those who are joining with me now via YouTube or via the radio, via podcast or however it is that, Father, you would speak to them. May they come to know Christ. May they come to know the love of God the Father. And may they experience the fellowship and intimacy with the Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Galatians Part 7 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, the law shows us that we need to be forgiven. 
The law was our guardian just until Christ came so that we might be justified, not by fulfilling the requirements of the law, but by faith. More from Dr. Corbett next week as we continue in Galatians. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.